Hi and welcome to this very special episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn and today I'm joined by Basil Salouk. Basil is Associate Professor at the Lebanese American University. He's the author of, of many a book and article on Lebanese politics. You all know him, of course. We, we spoke earlier on in this series of podcasts and I'm excited to welcome Basil back. And we're going to talk about what's been happening in Lebanon in recent days. So, Basel, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Simon. Uh, it's a, a pleasure, Basel. I'm really looking forward to hearing your insights. Um, it seems appropriate that we're doing this via WhatsApp, given that that is, is seen by many to be uh, perhaps a trigger for what's going on. But, but can you tell us what is going on and, and what you think triggered these these recent spate of protests, please? Yeah, well, WhatsApp was, as, as you've just mentioned, the, the tax that was proposed by the government uh, on WhatsApp calls and access to WhatsApp was really nothing but a trigger. Uh, but in reality, uh, what we're witnessing today in terms of uh, a kind of a popular movement that cuts across uh, regions, sects, religions, even classes, uh, is a manifestation of a, a deeper structural problem in Lebanon. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a manifestation of, you know, the, the, the end of a, a post-war clientelistic political economy. Uh, the way the system worked in the post-war period uh, meant that, that the sectarian system in its ideological, institutional, economic manifestations was supposed to make people mobilize only along sectarian and religious lines. But you, to do this, the political class, the political economic elite needed a well-functioning, a nicely greased uh, clientelistic machine. But with the economic crisis uh, that, had hit, that has hit the country uh, for a number of years now, and specifically with the, with the fiscal crisis uh, and also the monetary problems the country is suffering from, the clientelistic swamps have dried up. And uh, anyone who has lived in Lebanon for the past couple of years would have seen the extent of the economic crisis really visibly. Uh, in, in your face, in a sense. And so the debate was at the level of the government uh, uh, concerning how do you manage what has become really a, a, a disastrous economic situation. And uh, the political economic elite uh, was trying to limit the debate uh, to the level of uh, fiscal policies that would fall on the burden of the middle and the lower classes, meaning tax, uh, the poor tax, the middle classes, let them help us extract revenues that we would use for paying uh, interest on the debt and so on. And so uh, uh, the, the last of the suggestions that the the government came up with it was to tax to put the tax on uh, WhatsApp uh, 
uh, calls or access to WhatsApp call, which would uh, uh, amount to around $6 a month. Now, this is, of course, but symbols are very important. Uh, and I think it, for many people, especially those people who took to the streets on Thursday night, uh, it symbolized, it epitomized, if you like, a political economic elite that had taken everybody for granted and assumed that people are numbed. They are numbed by the technologies of the sectarian system and that they will not react. And this is, in a sense, a rebellion. It began as a kind of subaltern rebellion uh, against this political economic class. And it has avalanched into a, a rebellion by a new community that is trying to now imagine itself and define itself and position itself as a kind of a community against the existing sectarian order. That's really fascinating to hear you say that. And I have so many questions to ask Basel. But before we get into that, <laughs> um, can you just put a bit of flesh on the bone of, of how bad is this economic system? How bad are things in Lebanon? According to Lydia Aswat's research, 0.1% uh, of the population, which is around 3,000 people, make uh, the equivalent of what 50%, the bottom 50% of the population makes. Another uh, statistic is even starker. Around 1% of the population controls roughly around 57% of the wealth, whereas the bottom 50% controls just 1% of the national wealth. Uh, the state is retreating from all kinds of services. Uh, public sector salaries eat up around 35% of government of budget expenditures. Interest on the debt is, a, is another 35%. Uh, uh, we've been suffering from stagflation uh, for a number of years. Unemployment rates are very high, especially for the new graduates. So you really have, in the past couple of years, uh, you have an economy that is not in a standstill, but it's uh, going backwards. Uh, given the amount of the debt uh, and the amount of the budget deficit, uh, there is not much by way of uh, fiscal uh, capabilities for the state to intervene and to help the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, not that it is interested in that, really. Sure. Uh, and the kind of a neoliberal ideological uh, hegemony in, uh, or, uh, at the level of the political economic elite means that they only think in terms of uh, privatization, uh, taxing, uh, raising flat taxes, taxing uh, uh, the middle classes and the poor, uh, instead of thinking in terms of more progressive taxations and taxation on wealth and so on. And, you know, they thought that uh, they could uh, get away with it. And uh, the debate on the 2020 budget really brought all this to the fore. And it just exploded in their face. Yeah. Basel, it strikes me that, that the roots of these issues can be traced back 30 years Actually, 30 years to this day, in fact, because um, right. 
Today, on the 22nd of October, is, is the day that the Taif Accord was signed. Absolutely. I mean, this is very interesting because you know, Taif is blamed for a lot of things, uh, the Taif Agreement. But you, you can read Taif in very different ways. You can read Taif as a kind of ceasefire agreement that ended the war. You can read Ta'if as a document that reorganizes the power-sharing agreement in Lebanon uh, and uh, redistributes offices on a 50-50 ratio. But what it does is it actually consecrates sectarianism as the only mode of political organization, or if you like, the only mode of meaningful political mobilization and identification in the country. But there is a third element to Ta'if, which is opening space to moving out of sectarianism or desectarianization, to borrow your lovely term. <laughs> now, of course, the post-war political economic elite has only been interested in the first two readings of Ta'if. And they have... Uh, they have underscored those aspects of Ta'if which make sectarianism the only mode of political mobilization. And they have ignored those elements of Ta'if that could have opened up space for movement away from sectarian modes of political mobilization and identification. But as I said earlier, uh, the economic crisis that we've been facing uh, has, you know, in great part led to this explosion of anger and rejection of the sectarian order. And what it's doing is allowing some people, many people, to imagine a different form of Lebanon rather than the one imagined in the Taif agreement. And one of the really startling manifestations uh, of this uh, reimagining of the nation in Lebanon, if you like, is that people in the demonstrations were holding posters uh, saying that 2019 is the end of the civil war. And I thought this is really beautiful because yeah. in many ways, yeah, in many ways, Ta'if, in the reading of the political elite, if you like, in the reading of the political economic elite, meant that, you know, the war ends, we take over the state, no truth and reconciliation, no need to talk about these issues. We do an amnesty law and that's it. But uh, in many ways, these posters suggest that uh, the, the war continued in, in, in subtle ways, if you like, uh, particularly in the way these sectarian politicians continue to impose sectarian and confessional identities as the only types of identities that make sense. So what you have now is people saying, no, we don't want this anymore. And we have now declared the end of the civil war because now we are mobilizing along national lines, whether we are in Tripoli or in the, the south or in the southern suburbs of Beirut or in uh, the Bekaa or what have you. And I think this is beautiful, and this is a, this is truly a foundational moment because it is it expresses in many ways symbolically the the emergence of a anti-sectarian 
trans actor in the human <laughs> community yeah. that wants to imagine the nation in a, in, a, in a way very different than the one that the sectarian system allows them to, 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 to imagine. That is a profound transformation which yeah. we need time to digest and to theorize and to talk about. It's... It's an existential transformation. This this moving away from the from the civil war and this reimagining the the role of identities. But it's it's such a complex thing. Given you know, you've written extensively on on these aspects in Lebanon and beyond, and it it strikes me that given the way that the the sectarian ordering, as you talk about, is mapped onto the political economy side of things, that it's such a complex process to, to untangle all of this and then to go about reimagining things as well? Well, this is our task as scholars, really. Uh, and as I said, it's going to take us time to do this. But for, you know, every, you know, for people, ordinary people, uh, their task is to express this in their own ways. And in the past four days, five days, they have been expressing a very different kind of Lebanon than the one we've seen since 2005. Yeah. Where, albeit the political camps were not monolithic, but where the political elite uh, technically took, imposed and spoke in the name of sex, really. Uh, in a, you know, in a very instrumental way, instrumentalizing these identities. Uh, but no, you have now a rebellion against this. Uh, I'm not saying that Everybody in Lebanon is now rebelling against sectarian identities, or that everybody is against the sectarian order. It's a dense order. It's a hard order. Yeah. It will strike back. Uh, a lot of people have serious material vested interest in this order, but it has opened a new space and a new language with which you can use to uh, to express. Uh, to express the nation, and I think this is amazing. Yeah, it's such a powerful and positive way of of doing politics, I guess. Uh, before you mention something about the language, Basel, we we know that that there's a great deal of of um, of traction and and protest taking place in Beirut, but how does this play out in in the other places across Lebanon? That you I mean you mentioned Tripoli and the Bekaa. What, what are we seeing there in contrast to, to Beirut, or, or is it more of the same? No. Uh, what I meant is that in the past, the, uh, really the spinal cord of protest was in Beirut. Yeah. And often, you know, these protests uh, develop into, uh, or people accuse these protests of, of being expressions of mainly middle class, you know, urban populations sure. yeah. with people from, you know, other parts of the country. But this time around, you know, it started very haphazardly in, 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 uh, in Beirut, but then it exploded in the peripheries. And I think the peripheries are important because, you know, that's where you see, especially in the Bihar and in Tripoli, that is where you see... Uh, the kind of poverty you don't see in many other parts of the country. 
And so the question was always, why don't these communities rebel, given the extent of the poverty? And so what we're seeing now in a place like Tripoli, which has been for many years now labeled as a Salafi jihadi city, very deeply conservative, we're having 24-hour parties in the middle of the square. So the, even the, I, you know, the image of the city is changing. And yeah. more importantly, a place that was, in a sense, uh, labeled as the sectarian other of the southern suburbs, you know, as kind of balancing what is uh, Shia southern suburbs with a Sunni Tripoli, uh, Tripoli, the people of Tripoli singing uh, songs in uh, solidarity with their brothers and sisters in, in the southern suburbs. So crossing this kind of sectarian divide that has been created uh, since 2005 and saying we're all Lebanese and more importantly, we are all in the same poor boat, if you like. Uh, we're seeing similar things happen in, the, in, in, in big parts of the south, uh, across the country, even the mountains. And so today, nobody can say that these demonstrations are really the activity of spoiled urbanites. Uh, people who are suffering from, uh, you know, decades of bad economic policies have decided to uh, to mobilize along their socioeconomic identities and not along uh, sectarian identities. And this is creating new fault lines in the country. Again, this will take time to develop. Yeah. But, but whereas in the past, the, 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 the normal fault line accepted by the sectarian system and the sectarian political elite were sectarian divisions or religious divisions, and these are you know, weaponized during election times and so on. Uh, now there is a new false line. There's a community that is becoming now, emerging, uh, and it's saying, I don't want to use sectarian identities as uh, modes of mobilization. And it's positioning itself against the sectarian order. So the false lines are between those who continue to embrace the sectarian order order and those who are rebelling against that order. Right. And I guess there's a, a, a whole new language starting to emerge to, to describe this this new set of orderings and these new fault lines. Yeah, I mean, a, 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 a national language, a, a, a language of economic need, if you like, a, a language of, a, a kind of language that was suppressed in the past. Yeah. But, but, I mean, but what's more important uh, about all this is that, you know, people are redefining their subjectivity. Sure. And I'm not an anthropologist, but, but what you see is an, an expression of a new community that is trying to assemble itself and standing in solidarity with itself. Uh, in different parts of the country. Again, this needs time to gel, to, to, to emerge, but it's a truly foundational moment. Yeah, it's so exciting. Basil, I guess, I guess the final question for now uh, has to be along the lines of what happens next? To what extent can this foundational movement 
survive? Can the the old sectarian order fight back? Will the status quo remain, or, or will we see this continuation of an existential transformation? Yeah, which brings us to Gramsci. Huh? <laughs> The old order is that the new is emerging. This is the time of zombies. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think this is the real struggle now. The struggle is to organize these very, you know, polyphonic voices that one hears these days. And, I mean, one of the problems with the kind of popular mobilization that you're seeing now is that it's leaderless. It, it lacks any kind of network organization, and every individual has a manifesto yeah. that uh, she or he believes is should be the main program for this for this movement. A lot of people are working tirelessly now to try to build bridges, to to bring some kind of organizational order. Uh, what you see also at the level of civil society, the kind of civil society that the sectarian system has destroyed systematically uh, is, uh, you know, uh, uh, lawyers, what have you, trying to rebuild their networks at the very local levels. And in order to, to in many ways, uh, uh, come up with a, a kind of a collectivity that speaks in one voice and has a set of demands that uh, it wants to achieve. Uh, having said this, there are two views now uh, among this new community that's developing. One view wants the, the collapse of the sectarian order uh, immediately, and uh, victory means the collapse of this order. Another view that says this is a long-term project a kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a battle that is just beginning, uh, so like a war of position, to go back to uh, Gramsci, and that we need, need to come up with incremental uh, steps that we need to achieve over a period of time. This is natural because, as I said, it is the objective of the sectarian system and the political economy of sectarianism to ensure that no alternatives emerge. And this is why, as John Nagel mentioned in your podcast a while ago, when these alternatives emerge, they are usually very radical. Uh, but hopefully, as people organize and come together, uh, they will come around and a leadership that can play the role of a magnet and brings people around it. And, uh, and also a set of demands. Sure. Well, I guess all eyes are going to be on Lebanon for the foreseeable. Um, Basil, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your day to, to talk to us. It's been so um, thought-provoking and stimulating as always. And uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up sometime soon. Simon, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to speak to you. Likewise, Basil. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.